Good morning. It is so good to be with you today in a non-ridiculously hot Sunday, and I am excited about this passage because it's short, and yet we're going to cover a lot of passages and verses from multiple books of the Bible today. And so, just so you know, we're big on the DIY bulletin where we have you fill in things. We have you take notes. And so, we don't ever put the name of the sermon, uh, not just because I don't come up with the name until Saturday, but we don't ever put the name of the sermon in there because we want you to fill it in. And just so you know, the sermon's name today is Don't Stop Believing." Did I just make any of you sing in your hearts just now? All right, so we're going to be going through this message known as Don't Stop Believing." We're in a series called In Jesus' Name, Amen, where we're walking verse by verse through the book of John, and we started in February of 2018, and here we are in chapter 9. And we take breaks, but we want to go through the entire book of John because as John says in chapter 20, we, he wrote this, the Holy Spirit spoke through John and wrote what we know to be true of the gospel of John so you could know that Jesus is the Christ and you can have life in his name. And so today we're going to conclude the story, uh, not necessarily the story, but the chapter 9 of John where there was a blind man who Jesus came and he healed. And in the book of John, we've seen Jesus speak to this blind man, and he used very interesting means in which to heal this blind man. In fact, he, he grabbed dirt, he spit in it, he made it mud, and he put it on the guy's eyes and then sent him to a pool which was known as scent to wash it off, and then all of a sudden he could see. Then a bunch of people, including some of the religious leaders that we often see in the book of John, come to this man born blind, MBB, come to this man born blind, and they start to ask him questions to how he was healed and who healed him. So much did they ask him questions about it, they brought him to them twice, and they talked to him, and they even attempted to get his parents to come uh, testify to how he got healed. The man born blind has just shut down this group of people with this response about what literally happened where he said, well, I was blind, and then Jesus came, and then I could see. Then after asking the antagonists if they wanted to be Jesus' disciples also, which in my opinion is one of the greatest burns in all of Scripture, they send away the blind man, essentially saying, get out of my sight. All right, that was everything that happened. We're picking up in verse 35 where Jesus is now coming back to the, blind, the man born blind who now can see, and we're going to see him heal him of something else. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they threw him out, they had, uh, that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? There's something really special about this that I don't want us to miss. It said that Jesus heard. Someone was sharing about what had happened to this former blind man, and Jesus came to him. He found him. He pursued him. And what does Jesus do? He asks him a question, but he asks him a messianic question. He asks him a justification question, a salvation question. But as we say often, as we've been studying through the book of John, Jesus never asks a question out of ignorance. He asks a question to expose something in the hearer's heart. And I want to point out something that I'm sure most of us already know this, but it's important to cover this and say this because I don't want us to miss this. This man, this man born blind who now could see, he did not heal himself, church, nor did he find Jesus, but Jesus came to him. This man was blind and then God intervened. 
And many come to Jesus in the accounts of the gospel letters, but they come to Jesus not necessarily to understand who he is, but they come to Jesus with the hope that he will heal them. That someone's sick, someone they know sick, so they bring them to Jesus. But all of these people don't really understand that even though he has power from God, it's not just power from God, it's because Jesus is God. We read the Gospels thinking that people understood who Jesus was, and I think often as we read the Scriptures in our own pride, as we read the Gospels, we think that we understand who he is too. But Jesus, our God, is not a mystical doctor, even though he could heal people. He is the Messiah. The Son of Man who came not to make us healthy, but to be the solution to our sin nature. So even though he could heal, he healed to point people to the fact that he is the Messiah and you can have life in his name. So I don't want us to have the pride that many do, church, that think that we came to Jesus with the right motives or we're in control of who we believe in. In John 6, Jesus speaks about this. We studied this many months ago. Here's what it says in John 6, 43. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. You did not conjure up enough faith to trust him. You did not create the circumstances that you had to find him, nor did someone find a remedy to make themselves be able to see spiritually. God's grace is that he came to you, and God drew you, and God saved you. No one who believes that they save themselves inherits eternal life. No one that believes that they can save themselves inherits eternal life. And I share this simply because God opposes the proud. Did you know that? Did you know that this is a common theme of Scripture? And I don't know a more prideful belief than someone working their way to God and saying, look, I did it. The story up until now has been all about a healing of a physical blindness, but what we're about to experience is the healing of a spiritual blindness and a calling out of people who believed that they could spiritually see. Jesus says that these people who thought they could see were spiritually blind and they were obstinate. So what does Jesus say to this man? He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? This title is one that is used 13 times in the book of John. It is the title in which Jesus refers to himself the most. It is a messianic title. It is about being the Christ, one that is used in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. So we're going to look at that, where Daniel speaks of what, who the Messiah was and what he was going to come and do. And so Daniel chapter 7, it'll be on the screen. Here's what Daniel says. In my vision at night, verse 13, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days, that's the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the title that Jesus uses for himself. Not because Daniel used it, and then Jesus was a fan of it, so he's like, oh, I should use that. But this is what the Messiah is called. And by Jesus calling himself that, he's outing himself as the one that the book of Daniel speaks about. Daniel wrote this around 605 B.C. And Jesus called himself that. Why? Because he is the Messiah. 
prominent above every other theme in the book of Daniel is God's sovereign control over the affairs and rulers of all nations and their final replacement with the true king. And spoiler alert, it's Jesus. So we ask, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? What does it mean to believe in something? For most of us, we'd answer that if we believe in something, we would have another term, which is we have faith in that thing. And having faith in something, we neutralize in today's culture because we think we can have faith without ever really trusting something. We think we can believe in something without ever putting any actual stake into it. And I'd like to contend that this is why many people claim to be Christians, but if you look at their lives, it looks like their belief in Jesus does not make a lick of difference in the way that they live. So let me illustrate this simply. I need a volunteer. Who wants to be my volunteer? No. Come on, keep trying. I need a guy. I need a guy. All right, John. Oh, man. All right. John was in first service, so he knows what's about to happen. So, come on. No, you're good. You're good. I can handle this. So, all right. So, here's how we simply describe this. The idea is that if you trust something, if you really believe something, then you do something with it. it. It leads to an action. Action is manifested. And so, John, you've been here for almost six months. Uh, while you've been here, I've gotten to become, a, get to know you a little bit better. And because I'm one of the pastors of this church, I'm one of your pastors. Um, John, do you trust me? I do. Awesome. Would you turn around? Would you fall back? Oh, yeah. Great job, John. Way to go. Way to go. Whew. First service, it was his brother David, and he fell back, and I was like, I'm not getting someone bigger. Ray, I was going to ask you to come up, but after I grabbed David, I was like, no, no, but good job, John. I, I came a little closer for you, just putting that out there. Here's why I use that illustration, because belief that is biblical is trust manifested, and John believed. John trusted so much he was willing to fall back. So don't, believe, don't say that you believe in something unless you're truly willing to trust it. Don't say you know someone unless you have met them and experienced them. There's an old quote by Dallas Willard who was a theologian. He said, knowledge is information experienced. Knowledge of something or to know someone is to experience them firsthand. So Jesus asked this former blind man if he believes in the Messiah. Does he put stake in him? Would he trust fall for the Messiah spiritually? And what does the man born blind say? Verse 36. Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. This man wanted to worship. This man wanted to believe. But who does he believe in and who should he worship? He just doesn't know yet. But it seems as if he's good soil. He's ready to have the truth infiltrate his heart. He's willing to trust. And Jesus asked if he believed in the Son of Man. See, this blind man who now could see was a beggar. He was a Jew who was privy to the fact that the law, the Old Testament, had promised a Messiah that would come one day and would reign. He would be a son of David, a son of man to come. And so he was quick to listen to this man who was speaking to him, who he believed, based on the other passages, was a prophet from God. And Jesus said, verse 37, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. 
Now, did this man know that this was the only, what, that this was the actual one that they called Jesus? Probably, because if you think about it, when Jesus came to him and he healed him, he was speaking to him. And I'm sure that his voice was the same. Jesus didn't like change his voice when he was talking to him now. And when you're blind and you can't see, your other senses are generally heightened. So he had heard the stories. And most importantly, he had experienced firsthand what Jesus could do. But from the passage last week, we hear that this man believed that Jesus was from God, but that he wasn't God. He wasn't there yet. He didn't understand that yet. He understood that he was a prophet. He understood that he was someone who spoke on God's behalf, and he probably had the power of God given to him, but he did not compute that Jesus could actually be God. A consistent argument I hear from very ignorant people was that Jesus never said that he was God. That all of this Messiah stuff happened after he had died and the story of Jesus doing what he did, saying what he said, fulfilling what he fulfilled, and being who he was is all fairy tales. Has anyone ever said this to you? Have you ever heard this? Have, if you're like me, have you ever said this at some point, which I did before I knew Christ? It was all made up, is what they think, by very ingenious people who wanted to pull the wool over everyone's eyes. But calling himself the Son of Man, when Jesus refers to himself as this, the fulfillment of what the people of Israel were waiting on, that they were expectant of, which was a Savior and a Messiah, this was either blasphemy on the highest scale, or Jesus is who he says that he is. How do I know that he not only called himself God incarnate, but was convinced that he was God? It's based on what happens next. Verse 38, then the man said, Lord, I believe and he worshiped him. Know why I know that Jesus has a Messiah complex and believed that he was God? Simply because Jesus accepted worship. You guys see that? He doesn't say, stop worshiping me. He accepts worship. And this man had been healed of his blindness, and he knows that this man and what he had done, Jesus, was from God, but in this moment, he's starting to realize this is the Son of Man because Jesus told him directly. And boy, oh boy, the idea that he doesn't just think that he's from God, but that he is God, this is hitting the jackpot spiritually. Because it's one thing to believe that Jesus existed. A lot of people would say that they believe in it, they've looked into history, things like that. It's another thing to say that they believe Jesus is a prophet, which a lot of people would, would probably admit. In fact, even Islam believes Jesus is a prophet. But it's an entirely different eternal conclusion to believe that Jesus is God with skin, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior, the Lord God Almighty, which is encapsulated in the term, the Son of Man. So don't get that twisted. Don't misunderstand. Many believe something about Jesus. But unless you know him as Savior, whatever you believe in is in vain. So the man born blind, has this moment. All of a sudden, his reference has changed, not because he's found out more of Jesus' reputation, but because God has intervened. He hasn't just opened his eyes physically, but now he's opened his eyes spiritually, and he knows who the Messiah is. For the very first moment in this man's life, he can truly see. Do you remember the day that you first believed? If you are a Christian in this place, if you've committed your life to Jesus Christ, do you remember that moment when you first believed, where Jesus first made himself known to you, 
I'd been attending a church, I was 19, and I had a pastor and a girlfriend's father who both were talking to me about Jesus, investing in me, and I had, I'd, actually, I'd just turned 20, I hadn't been 20 for very long, and I'd had these people try to invest in me and tell me about Jesus, I was very antagonistic towards Christ, and after all of these things and then some difficult circumstances, including breaking up with a girlfriend, for some reason I still was going to church because it was safe. And so I'm sitting in this church service, and I'm not gonna, we're not going to play this song, but it was the song Shout to the Lord, because I just dated myself. And they're playing Shout to the Lord, and, and the worship leader's leading, and they're singing this song, and in the middle of the song, I don't know exactly what happened, even to this day, exactly how this takes place, but I felt like God put his arm around me in the middle of the song, and he said, I've got you. Not like Morgan Freeman voice, but like in an impression. And he does this, and in that moment... I just started to cry. And if I knew it or not, I think I started to worship him. It doesn't mean I raised my hands and all of that, but I just started to realize who he was. I walk up to this blonde who uh, is currently our children's director at this church, plus my baby's mama and my wife. And she was my friend at the time, and I walked up to her and I said, I don't exactly know what happened, but in the middle of the song, I feel like I put his arm around me, I got you. And she starts to cry, and I'm like, why are you crying? She's like, you gave your life to Jesus. And I was like, I did what now? And the very next week, I got baptized, and I started to follow him. <laughs> and boy, oh boy, did I not really understand all that I had signed up for. But I remember that moment when I first believed. And I want to encourage you, if you have that moment, if you remember, it doesn't have to be in a church service, maybe it was at bedtime with your parents, and your parents were like, you don't want to go to hell, do you? No, 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 I'm just kidding. Don't use that. Don't use that. But maybe you were with your parents, and your parents told you about Christ, and God opened your eyes. Maybe you were going through some circumstance where you were on your back, and all you could do was look up, and God opened your eyes. There is something incredibly important about remembering that when it first happened. I don't ever want to forget that moment when I first believed. So do you remember the hour you first believed? Do you remember when your eyes were first opened? I remember when God first opened my eyes to see him, and here's the truth, I knew very little theology. I just knew that I was once blind spiritually, and all of a sudden I could see Jesus for who he was. I was once dead, but then I was alive. I was once lost, but then I was found. And it was all because God, in his immeasurable grace, decided to intervene. And coming to Christ, having my eyes open spiritually like the blind men meant that I was no longer dead in my transgressions and sins as I once was. I was made alive in Christ through his grace, through his peace, through his intervention. And it made me a worshiper. It made me someone who had a heart to want to worship God. And that meant that I no longer needed to worship myself. I no longer needed to worship false gods that never satisfied, but that I could and would worship Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of my life. Do you remember when you first believed? To know Christ is to bow down to his lordship in every facet of your being. We bow down to Christ spiritually by no longer attempting to earn salvation or being good enough, or trying to do something to appease God, but we bow down to him spiritually by fully realizing and understanding that our righteousness, this word means right standing, our right standing is not because of anything that we've done, but completely and unmistakably because of what God has gifted us. 
It's at the heart of the gospel, church. A lot of times we want to argue about theological terms, don't we? But here is what I'm here to tell you. If you think you could do anything to be saved, like it was your idea, you personally contributed to your salvation, that is not salvation. That is a subtle work of the devil attempting to give you credit for something that only God does. Believing you saved yourself or even contributing to your salvation through your own decision-making decision is prideful. It's arrogant. And if you read Scripture, you see that God has a specific feeling towards arrogance. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has been traveling, he's been healing people, his reputation is preceding him, there are people following him. He goes to this, this mountain, and he's at this mountain, and he has his disciples, not just the 12, many others that have been following him, and there's this great crowd of others that are there to listen to him. And he begins to teach, and he teaches not only his most popular sermon, but probably the most popular sermon ever preached in history and what I hate that happens when I hear people preach the Sermon on the Mount is we've turned it into how can you have 10 ways to be a better person? And that is not at all what the Sermon on the Mount is about. At the beginning of the sermon, Jesus starts out with what? It's known as the Beatitudes, or as I like to refer to them as the attitudes that be in his people. The attitudes that be in his people. I know it's not proper English, but that's how I see it. And these are not what you do to be saved. What Jesus is about to say is not what you do to be saved. This is what you do because you're God's people. These are the attitudes that his people possess because the spirit of the living God resides in them when by faith they've trusted Jesus Christ. So here's what it says, Matthew 5 verse 3. Here's how he starts. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. I get the opportunity to meet with groups of guys and we study the Bible. We've been going through Luke for a while. And, and as we're going through Luke, we also read Matthew. We read Mark if the same story has happened because we want multiple passages to dictate how we understand this. We want Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so here's the thing. If you just read Luke Based on the same passage, it says, blessed are the poor. Wow. Okay. Well, with our Western cultured minds, we can take that to believe that if you have any material possessions, you're not blessed. But it's a great thing that we have multiple gospel accounts to help color in the picture of what is meant when things are said. Blessed are those who are poor, dependent, in spirit, those who are not prideful, those who are reliant upon God rather than their own abilities and human will, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They possess a place in the kingdom of God, not because they act humble, but because God's spirit has filled them. God's spirit has dominated them, and because they know that they did nothing to be saved. Their response is to be worshipful and dependent in spirit rather than prideful and arrogant in their personhood. Let me, let me give you something. An arrogant Christian is an oxymoron. I didn't say an arrogant Christian's a moron. I said an arrogant Christian is an oxymoron. And some of you are like, what's an oxymoron? I missed that year in school. I don't remember what that means. An oxymoron is a figure of speech in which contradictory terms appear in conjunction. All right? That's what an oxymoron is. So, an arrogant Christian is impossible. 
Don't believe me? Let's look at how God sees those who are arrogant and prideful versus those who have been humbled. Here we go. This is going to be fun. You ready? Because on the back sheet of your bulletin, there's a bunch of verses. See all those? We're about to walk through a bunch of them. Here we go. Psalm verse, chap, uh, chapter 138, verse 6. Though the Lord is exalted, he looks kindly on the lowly. Though lofty, he sees them from afar. Proverbs 3, 34. He mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. Proverbs 29, verse 23. Pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit gain honor. Luke chapter 1, verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. James chapter 4, verse 6, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And then in Luke, because in Luke, the Beatitudes aren't just the Beatitudes, it's not just the blessed, but it's also the woes. He says in Luke chapter 6, verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. So he takes this to, to be the opposite of poor. So those who are meek or humble, they are blessed, but those who are prideful, they've already received what they want. See, God opposes those who are proud. And I don't know about you, I don't want to be opposed by God. I just don't. Because I am nothing without him. And to be found across enemy lines from him is terrifying, church. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, Jesus says, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, I totally agree that many exalt themselves, if we say it or not. Many of us have this far higher view of ourselves and our contribution to the kingdom of God than is actually realistic. I know this about myself. I know that I am constantly making decisions based on pride. But Jesus says those who humble themselves will be exalted. The language here, it uses the one that he uses, makes one think that they can be less arrogant if they just try harder. But we misinterpret what Jesus is saying. In fact, C.S. Lewis, I think, said it best. He said, for the truly humble man will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. See, you cannot humble yourself in the sense that you can create the product of a humble heart. You can't try to be humble, you get humbled. That's how it works. Humble or humility, it's the root word of humiliation, and when Christ hung on the cross for our sins, for mankind, he was humiliated beyond belief. God in the flesh was tortured, he was beaten, he was stripped naked by his creation, and the only way for his creation to be restored was through his humiliation, which brought us access to a perfect and holy God Hallelujah. So when the great exchange took place, the great exchange is he got what we deserved, we get what he deserves. When the great exchange took place, he who deserves all glory, all honor, became nothing so that those of us who deserve death could inherit eternal life. So guess how we get humbled? Through circumstance. That's how God does it. I met with this wonderful couple this past week who's been attending this church for almost a year, 
They're, roughly, they're my in-laws' age, and, and they asked me about my first year here. Now, I don't really hide the fact right now that things at COV are awesome. All right, I'm going to brag on the church for a second. Things are wonderful. We have a healthy staff team that work together for the sole purpose of making much of Jesus. And when people start to get off course, we spend time with them and we talk to them and point them to Christ. We have an eldership team that loves the Lord and leads this church and their families well, and they're growing in their, their shepherding of people. God has provided amazing people to be the family of God here at COV, and you're sitting in the pews right now. I don't hide that this is my dream job because I get to proclaim Jesus Christ through his word in my favorite city in which I grew up in, and so I don't hide that fact at all. But I also don't hide the fact that the first year, I've been here for a little about 26 months, the first year that I and many of you were here, it was really, really hard. It was really, really difficult. That there was hurt and pain that we endured through the first year here at COV that at least for me is la giving lasting effects on my psyche and it's probably changed me personally where I don't even know. So I was sharing this with this couple and the wife so, had so much empathy for me and she looks at me dead in the eye and she goes, Tim, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. And I don't know if this was spirit-led or if God just matured me and I didn't know it, but my response to her was, I'm not sorry that I had to go through this because it humbled me. I don't know if I could have said that six months ago. I don't know if I saw that it had done that. See, it didn't take me trying to be more humble it took one of the hardest circumstances that I have ever been through in ministry and God's work in my life to give me the faith to daily choose him rather than my flesh, to pull punches when I was being punched and I knew I could have punched back 50 times harder than they could. It required me caring for the sheep that were without a shepherd and allowing God to separate the sheep and the goats all through the power of his work in me. It required me and you to prayerfully seek guidance from God who is with us rather than just take advice of human wisdom. So the first year was difficult, and it hurt, and I still have moments of these feelings where they come back, but if all that time spent getting beat up emotionally produced in me and you Christ-likeness, then I cannot tell you how fortunate we are for going through that. I get to stand here before you as your pastor who has a character that has been tested and will continue to be tested and God will continue to humble me and humble us because Christ's likeness is not a benefit of our Christian life, it is the Christian life. It's the point. Once you know him, you should show him off and you should grow to look more like him. And so, as we go through hard circumstances, we probably can't see it in the moment. We can't see it when we get that phone call of, of something that's happened that's an emergency, but God can redeem some of the hardest stuff we've ever gone through to humble us. Verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. <laughs> the judgment that Jesus came to was that literally everyone was condemned. 
because no one is good, no, not one, but because he came as a sacrifice for the sin of the world, he comes not to condemn, but to save those who by faith would repent and trust him. He's not the bad news, he's the good news. Everyone knows John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, but what happens right after, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It is only through Jesus Christ that salvation is available. The ignorance of the world (laughs) is that everything is fine. Everything's okay. Real quick, have you checked the news lately? Everything is not okay. And those of us who know this, we understand that this world is stuck in sin and God sends his son into the fray to pay for the wages of sin and make those wages satisfied. For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. So Jesus comes in the world so that the blind will see. Those who could not see the light would be able to see the light of the world, and they would be able to have life in his name. But he didn't just come for those who could not see, but what does it say? Those who could see would become blind. Er? What? This doesn't mean that they were people who actually could see without him. But those who were self-righteous, those who justified themselves by their own works, and they confused their belief because they thought that they actually could see, he would make known to them that they're really blind. I can't tell you how spiritually bankrupt self-righteousness is, how blind legalism is. But Jesus doesn't mince words. He doesn't try to beg people that are legalistic to turn to him. In fact, he constantly offends them in the scriptures because the gospel and the person and work of Jesus Christ strips you of self. You are no longer good enough in your own minds, but this worshipful heart, as your worldview is being changed, it makes you realize it's because it's not just less of us and more of him It's none of us and only him. That's what it means to be in Christ. We are in him and him alone. So know that as you pursue Jesus, as you trust him, if God has drawn you to himself, he will strip you of your pride. He will transform you into his likeness, but it will take time. It will require hard, refining circumstances and a willingness to trust him unto obedience. If you're not up for that, It may just be that Jesus is exposing to you that even though you think you can see, maybe you say things like, well, I grew up in the church, or I had some mountaintop experience once that you always point back to, or maybe you think, well, I don't sin like everyone else, that all of those things don't justify and they definitely don't make up for the fact that you can't ever do enough to pay for your own sin, so you must trust Jesus fully or not at all. You must trust Jesus fully or not at all. You must trust fall for Jesus. John didn't stutter when he fell back. You must trust Jesus fully or not at all. Verse 40, some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? (laughs) Okay, 
Talk about a setup. Now, let me tell you guys something about me. I don't want to make this about me, but hear me. I am inherently sarcastic, all right? If you know me, yeah, no, yeah, no, really. I am, Mike. I'm surprised you don't know that with an office next to me. Uh, so I'm inherently sarcastic, and I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that that's kind of how I tend. And if you ask a question where a really good burn could be sent back, it like takes everything in me not to do it, okay? If I were Jesus in this moment, I'd absolutely want to let them have it. Anyone else? Okay, me and Ray, praise God. <laughs> See, these Pharisees had justified themselves by their own self-righteousness, by their hoity-toity, don't even know how to spell it, hoity-toity attitude, because they think that they have set themselves up to see because they've done so much. They've listened to God. And yet, if I'm Jesus in this moment, I'm going to trash them. I would want to say, you being blind, nah. You can obviously see how awesome you think you are. See, that's what I would say. And now that I've said it out loud, I feel better. Okay, all right. But what does Jesus say? Does he go the sarcastic route? Does he attempt to beat around the bush? Is he passive aggressive? Here's what Jesus says. Verse 41, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Wow. See, this is a verse we can misinterpret for sure, so let's dissect it. Jesus responds with, if you were blind. Listen, they are. But Jesus often would speak in allegory or analogies or parables. He would juxtapose sayings in such a way that you would have to understand the essence of who was speaking so you could keep up with what he meant. If you don't know what I mean, listen to Mike, okay? It's kind of like that, all right? No? All right. So they are blind spiritually, but not out of ignorance, or they're blind spiritually, but the reason they're blind spiritually is because they know the law. They don't understand what the law was put into effect for. They do, they're confused and misunderstand what the law accomplishes. For the Pharisee and many of us, we believe that as long as we're good enough, God will accept us. Or as Christians, as long as we're good enough, God will continue to accept us. God does not accept you based on what you bring to the table or what, what you do or how good you are. If that were our litmus test, we'd all fail. God accepts us, not the other way around, God accepts us because Jesus Christ is, here's a word most of us can't spell, propitiation. Okay, can you say that with me? Propitiation. You guys are not doing this. Propitiation. Okay, this side's all right. Propitiation. Awesome. So Jesus is our propitiation. You're like, what does that mean? It means that what we owed, Jesus satisfied. We sinned against God, and Jesus came and paid the tab for us. And no matter what, we do not owe more. Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead was enough. He is our propitiation. Our debt is satisfied. That's our king. He's done it for us, not because we brought anything to the table, but because he is a gracious, loving, and perfect God. Romans 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, we owed our lives, and Jesus gifted us his. Not just in his death to pay for our sins, but in his perfect life accredited to us. But, and this is a big but, 
Sir Mix-a-Lot. We must believe. At the beginning of this passage, I said that we have divorced belief from trust. There is no such thing, stay with me, as a non-practicing Christian. Do you guys know that? That doesn't exist. There is no such thing as a non-practicing Christian. But listen to these others. There's no such thing as a good Christian. Okay, you're like, okay, I kind of get that because Christ is our righteousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, here's the third one. You ready? There's no such thing as passionate Christians. Say what? Hmm. Because these adjectives don't make Christians special. Christians are good not in their morals, but in the fact that Jesus' goodness and righteousness was given to us. If you're not passionate about Jesus, it's because you don't understand the gospel. And I'm not saying that you don't have a relationship with him. I'm saying that we do not graduate from the gospel. And we need to be reminded of the goodness that you did nothing to be saved, but because God is good, he saved you. You can't take credit for it, church. Stop trying to. So if we believe in him, if we trust him, he is enough like we sang. Then we have embraced this amazing grace, and because of that, we no longer stand condemned like we once were before we first believed. So John 3.16, super well known. 3.17, super encouraging. Here's 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That's some bad news. But that is what true spiritual blindness looks like. The God of the universe who created the earth, the heavens and everything in them, took on flesh to be the solution to our sin problem, lived the life we wouldn't, died the death we should have, and physically rose from the dead. And many just do not believe the fact that you can know God personally, intimately, and experientially through the person and work and message of Jesus Christ because they are blind and they cannot see. Like these Pharisees, they ought to know better. But because they couldn't, they were still guilty of their sin. What sin? The sin of not believing that Jesus is the Christ. That is the only unforgivable sin, church. That is true blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. To take the proclamation of what the Spirit of God says, that Jesus is it, that he is the point, that he is the Messiah, that he is God with skin, he is the only way to eternal life, and say, nah, I don't believe that. So it must not be true. That's the one thing God does not forgive. (laughs) But while you still have breath, you have the opportunity to turn. While you still have breath, you have the opportunity to repent. While you still have breath, you have the opportunity to receive the grace that God has given and to change direction and to follow Jesus. And yet for those of us who have been healed of their spiritual blindness, for those of us who experience Jesus coming to them, they no longer have to live in fear, fear of death, fear of unforgiveness, because they are sons and daughters adopted by God, through God, and for God to make much of God. It's all about him. Verse 41, Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Unfortunately, because of the Pharisees' pride, they could not see past this. 
They could not humble themselves. They could not admit that they were blind. They continued to be condemned, not because of anything more than they didn't believe in Jesus and what he had done and what he would do. So church, do you believe? Do you trust fall for Jesus? Coming to church is not a trust fall. You don't need the Holy Spirit to drive to church. Are you willing to trust him in your daily lives? Are you willing to give up those things that are not of him? And I know you're not going to do it perfectly because I never do it perfectly, but are you willing to pursue the perfect one and are you willing to celebrate the fact that as you do, it leads to progress? Worship team, come on up. Church, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is Lord, and I don't think I conjured that up. I think God did it. I think God made it so I could see him for who he is. And so today, we're going to have this opportunity to give of our offerings, and we're going to worship in song, and we're going to have an opportunity for takeaways. And so I just ask you that in this time, as you're thinking through what we're singing, as you're thinking about the sermon that you just heard, Would you be thinking through what you can put into practice? Because as we obey him, we grow to look more like him if we do it for the right reasons. As we pass this offering, I don't want you to feel like you have to do this, but if you are a part of this church and this is where you're growing, you don't have to, but you get to give towards what God is doing here. And so I'd encourage you to give. If you're just visiting, just let the bags go by. But I hope that all of us would take something from this message and something from this time and that we would worship the King of kings and Lord of lords who did for us literally what we could not do because we were blind. Let's pray.